welcome to the third episode of Relay Theology, the podcast. At the beginning of December 2016, I released a book that I co-authored with theologian Randall Rouser titled, An Atheist and a Christian Walk into a Bar. It was a dialogue book on some arguments for and against theism, and as part of getting the word out for that book, uh, the popular Christian blog Strange Notions offered to publish a mini-dialogue on a new argument in order to kind of give people a, a bit of a taste of what the book was like. And we were, of course, happy to take them up on it. We chose to dialogue back and forth on the question of whether or not God would create perfect creatures instead of finite creatures. What is a perfect creature? Well, you'll have to, you'll, you'll find out in a moment. Anyways, Randall and I went back and forth, and we submitted the dialogue, and it was published as promised. But in the background, we kept going back and forth. The conversation touched on a lot of interesting terrain, and we thought it would actually be quite enjoyable to record it uh, for listeners of the podcast. And so without further delay, here is that audio. The first half of which, again, was published in text form on the Strange Notions blog. Well, Randall, uh, we've officially made it out alive. It's been an interesting year. 2016 saw the somber losses of some of the most beloved names in popular culture, as well as the death of sensible political discourse, all culminating with the election of a, of a buffoon to the White House. Well, yeah, I'm going to avoid comment on the buffoon, but at least we bucked the trend toward further polarization that is characterizing the public square by actually talking to each other. And yet, you know, even after all our conversations and the publication of an entire conversational book, your theism and my atheism are still alive and kicking. Yeah, that's right, but it shouldn't be that surprising. People don't usually change their perspective overnight, especially about such weighty matters as religion or politics. That's that's very true. Thankfully, we didn't approach this book with the sole purpose of changing each other's mind. We made a point to step out of the trenches of the theist-atheist battlefield for a chance to engage in some doxastic diplomacy. Nicely said. You know, it's hard to believe that after a couple hundred pages, we were only getting started. So how about we uh, pursue the conversation a bit further now? Any ideas? I've got one. So theists believe that God is the terminus of all explanation, that God is seated causally and logically prior to everything we know and everything we don't, with the possible exception of abstracta like universals or numbers. Uh, I think most would agree that God didn't need to create any of this. In other words, if he exists, any act of creation that followed was a free act of choice rather than one out of necessity. Yeah, sure, that sounds good to me. And moreover, God is in every way perfect. In that light, we can be confident that if God exists, then prior to creating anything, all that existed was pure perfection. But at present, there exists a universe made up of finite constituents. That fact is more surprising on theism than it is on the view... Uh, which states that the natural world is a uncreated, causally closed system. 
So, so why would I think that that's true? Well, because nearly every reason that we might appeal to in order to explain why God has created such a universe would far better motivate God to either refrain from creation acts altogether or create something entirely different. Hmm, that's interesting. So you think that we should expect God to create an infinite universe? I'm not sure I follow your reasoning here. Not quite. Uh, see, I think that if God is to have reasons to create at all, those reasons would lead him to create one or more of what uh, philosopher Evan Fales calls perfect creatures. So a perfect creature is a person just like God in every way, but whereas God is uncreated, a perfect creature is created. A perfect creature is maximal in all his power, his knowledge, and most importantly, moral perfection. So your claim is that if God existed, he would create only perfect creatures. Since non-perfect creatures exist, like you and me, that counts as evidence against God. But why do you think God would be restricted to creating only these perfect creatures? I'm not clear on the reasoning here. It's not so much because non-perfect creatures exist, though that is also true. It's because finite things exist generally. So if God is to be taken as the quality standard of all things, moral and ontological, then creating perfect creatures is going to best scratch any creative itch that God might have, given that these creatures are infinite and perfect in every way, like their creator God, the ultimate standard. Okay, so you say, but if I can identify a possible divine itch, which could not be scratched by creating perfect creatures, then that would constitute a defeater, an objection to your argument. So here's one. By creating imperfect creatures who grow into moral perfection, or what Christians call becoming sanctified, God actualizes particular goods not available by creatures that are perfect from the beginning. These goods include, for example, a sense of moral history, a sense of personal growth, of dynamic discovery, of learning to love and serve the Creator. There are a whole range of goods that God can actualize only by creating non-perfect creatures who have the capacity to grow. So what basis do you have to think that God wouldn't desire to actualize this range of goods? That's a great question, but let's focus on your first suggestion, uh, which is God's it to create persons who can grow into moral perfection, and that this requires him to create imperfect creatures. First, I, I don't think it's possible for finite persons to grow into moral perfection, but let's assume that this is possible. I still think there's a problem, and to see the problem with this kind of general approach, let me ask you a simple question. What is it that's so good about moral growth? So what you're asking is, what's so good about acquiring moral virtue? Well, that strikes me as a strange question. It's like asking, what's the value of climbing a mountain when you can be dropped off at the top via a helicopter? There's intrinsic virtue in undertaking the journey up the mountain, step by step. And there is intrinsic value in acquiring moral virtue over time. Why would you think otherwise? Well, my, my point is pretty simple here. What I'm saying is that reasons for valuing moral growth in imperfect creatures that already exist are not the same 
as reasons to create imperfect creatures in the first place. So, without imperfect creatures already existing, there is no reason to create them to be imperfect. Moreover, the introduction of imperfect creatures will also bring with them the failures of moral will and the various evils that result from those failures. Okay, so you just made two points. First, you said that the reasons for creating imperfect creatures would not be the same as valuing imperfect creatures that were already created. But I don't think this is correct. The same valuation could be operative in both cases. If God values courage, for example, that could lead him both to create beings who acquire courage and to value creatures that presently exist who have acquired courage. Now, on the second point, you're correct to observe that creating imperfect creatures who grow brings with it some degree of moral failure. That goes with the territory, but my response is, so what? You haven't shown that the degree of moral failure outweighs the value of having creatures with a moral history who acquire virtue over time. And that's what you need to show if you are to sustain an objection to God's existence based on the existence of imperfect creatures. Okay, so you've argued that God could value courage, and yet you've provided no good reason to think that God antecedently does value courage. All the reasons you have provided were extracted from the fact that courage and moral growth are very good things if we already exist as finite imperfect persons. Moreover, if things like courage and moral growth are such great things, then God, utterly lacking in both of these abilities, should be seen as a fault rather than a feature. I'm afraid that appealing uh, merely to the possibility of reasons for creating such beings won't cut it against my inference to the best explanation. Abductive arguments allow for these kinds of possibilities. At best, you'd be adding finite value to an already infinitely valued state of affairs. And at worst, as already discussed, you'd be introducing a plenitude of evils that we see uh, resulting from the choices of imperfect creatures. Uh, to me, with the choice of worlds before an infinite god, it isn't even close. This is a piece of evidence, then, against theism. Well, no surprise that I disagree with you here. And I'd like to make three points in rebuttal. First, you know, you said I've given no reason to think God values virtues like courage. But unless and until you can defend a sweeping skepticism about our moral intuitions, I think we remain justified in thinking that God would value courage in his creatures precisely because we value courage in creatures. Now, you also suggested that if a virtue like courage is valuable, then well, God ought to exemplify courage. But I think that's incorrect. God is by definition omniscient and omnipotent, and no being who is all-knowing and all-powerful can exhibit courage. Thus, God cannot exhibit courage. But finally, your argument rests on the claim that if God were to create, he would create perfect creatures. I provided a reason to reject that claim, namely, the goods that arise from creating imperfect creatures who grow into perfection. This very possibility is sufficient to undermine your claim that God would only create perfect creatures. So, you've made it abundantly clear that your moral intuitions point you toward courage and moral growth as being profoundly valuable things, such that they can serve as an excuse for God's exiting prior purity without creating these perfect creatures. 
Well, I prefer to say reason rather than excuse. Yeah, fair point. I've argued that your moral intuitions about courage and moral growth are not only perfectly consistent, but are actually far better explained by the fact that we finite creatures value these things intuitively because we already exist in the context that we do. So I don't think that these kind of anthropocentric theodicies that you've offered are capable of the weight that you've placed on them. Uh, sorry to interject here, but I never endorsed anthropocentrism. I didn't claim that you endorsed anthropocentrism, though perhaps I was wrong uh, to categorize your explanation of the value of courage, uh, which in my view, heavily is couched in the perspective of a human being living the, living in the actual world as anthropocentric. Perhaps I'm wrong about that. Nevertheless, from within theistic assumptions, how do you hold that courage and moral growth are of such great value despite their not being modeled in the nature of the divine? Isn't he supposed to be the ultimate standard? I assume that you are not defending a view wherein at least some values enjoy a kind of aseity independent of God. In other words, I must ask again, on theism, what's so great about courage and moral growth? But on the other hand, a view which states that the natural world is uh, uncreated and causally closed, if it brings about life at all, it would bring about life moderated and shaped by selective pressures. And so there's no plausible, or more accurately, no possible evolutionary story wherein perfect creatures could arise. This practical entailment of this godless view makes the absence of perfect creatures a certainty, and therefore a better explanation of these facts, mainly the uh, finite creatures, than a view like theism that doesn't share this kind of entailment. Okay, so you ask what's so great about courage and moral growth if God himself does not undergo courage and moral growth. The question itself presupposes that for a personal quality to be of value, it must be exemplified in God, but this is mistaken. I take it to be of value, for example, that a cheetah can run with speed and grace, because when it does so, it is being that for which it was designed to be, that is, a cheetah. The cheetah's value is not dependent on the fact that God is the perfect model of running on the savannah. Rather, a cheetah's value comes relative to fulfilling the purpose for which it was made, a purpose that need not be modeled in God. And as so it is, I would say, for human persons, our value is not dependent on the attributes we develop first being modeled in God. God doesn't need to be courageous for courage to be of value for human beings. If you don't value courage and its acquisition, then perhaps the best I can do is point to monumental instances of courage and hope that you share my intuitive recognition of the value of those examples. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, returning to Germany to fight the Nazis and ultimately giving his life in a concentration camp. I believe God values beings that exercise courage in the way Bonhoeffer did. And that's a good reason to create creatures like that instead of merely the perfect creatures that you've described. So, with respect to your comments about courage specifically, I'm not sure they are of much help. To be sure, your praises of Bonhoeffer's behavior in the face of adversity go a great distance toward demonstrating the value of courage in a world that is already pre-packed and full of evils to overcome and press against. Uh, but I'm afraid that these insights have really done nothing to demonstrate the value of courage in a world where there exists no such evils to press against. 
And for that reason, I'm suggesting it is simply an error to pose that the value of courage or of persons being courageous could serve plausible motivation for God to create anything other than perfect creatures in a state of affairs in which nothing but God existed. To make use of a different cheetah illustration here, we would both raise a skeptical brow to any argument from a theologian suggesting God created the physical world because he very specifically valued spotted fur. How remarkably ad hoc, we would think. We'd be liable to raise the other brow if, when asked to justify this assumption, our good theologian rambled on about the instrumental value of these spots for the camouflage they offer in certain kind of physical environments in the physical world. So you suggest that being a courageous person is only of value if one has occasion to exercise their courage. I think you're wrong about that. Virtue is of value, and vice is of disvalue, irrespective of whether one has occasion to act on that virtue or vice. Imagine that Jones has a character disposition, such that if she were ever to see a small furry animal, she would torture that animal for fun. Now, this is the only significant defect in her character, but admittedly, it is a doozy. Now, it could be that Jones never encounters a small furry animal throughout her life, and Thus, neither Jones nor the rest of us is ever aware of her disposition to torture. By your reasoning, her disposition to torture would not constitute a defect of her moral character because she never had occasion to act on it. I disagree. I think this remains a defect of objective disvalue, whether she ever encounters a small furry animal or not. And so it is with courage and cowardice. It is objectively preferable to have the virtue of courage rather than the vice of cowardice, irrespective of whether you ever have occasion to exercise that courage. Interesting point. But I do want to make sure I am understanding you correctly. Are you saying that the character disposition of courage and the goodness of it within Jones is consistent with there never actually being a time or state of affairs in which that courageous disposition actually motivates an action in Jones. Uh, if, on your view, a courageous person brings value partly in virtue of their courage, irrespective, uh, and here I'm quoting you, irrespective of whether one has occasion to act on that virtue, then I feel compelled to point out that, on your view, then, perfect creatures are perfectly capable of a courageous disposition that far exceeds that of any uh, limited, finite, or imperfect creature. It seems, then, that your claim about the goodness of courage cannot plausibly explain why God created specifically finite creatures and the universe in which they reside rather than bringing forth perfect creatures. And yet, on the other hand, we still have the view which states that the natural world is an uncreated, causally closed system, and we'd fully expect any existing creatures to exist as limited, finite, and imperfect creatures in that, on that hypothesis. Okay, I think you're mistaken about the idea that a perfect creature could exemplify courage. Now, your definition of perfect creature includes the attribute of being omnipotent or all-powerful and omniscient or all-knowing. While any being that has absolute power could not possibly face risk or threat. And any creature that knows all true propositions and believes no false ones would know that he or she could not possibly face any risk or threat. 
But in order to exemplify courage, one must either be under potential threat or face potential risk. Or they must at least believe they are under threat or face potential risk, even if they don't. From this it follows that your perfect creatures cannot possibly exercise courage. If God values courage, and presumably he does, he has good reason to create beings like us, finite beings, who can exercise courage and experience moral growth, rather than merely create perfect creatures with no ability to exercise courage or experience moral growth. Yeah, so I, I think I agree with you on that point. Recall, though, that when I asked you what's so good about courage, you appealed to your, uh, your moral intuitions. Uh, in response, I argued that your moral intuitions about courage are not only perfectly consistent with, but are also far better explained by the fact that we uh, finite creatures intuitively value these things because we already exist and face the challenges that only we finite creatures could face. So let me let me try to explain. Things like courage are are instrumentally good for the world context in which we uh, in which we finite creatures already exist. We develop in ourselves courage as a means to overcome evil in possible worlds where it exists and strive toward deeper and more basic goods. What makes courage seem so good are the deeper goods toward which courage is often rightly aimed. With this distinction between instrumental or worldly goods and the uh, deeper, more basic goods toward which they are aimed in mind, it's still far from obvious, indeed the waters are quite murky, why God would create imperfect finite creatures in the first place rather than perfect creatures. On the other hand, an uncreated causally closed system is a system in which creatures that come to exist will always come to exist as uh, finite and imperfect so the finitude of the creatures that do exist in the actual world is not surprising on the causally closed system. Okay, so what you call the instrumental goodness of courage is rooted in a deeper intrinsic goodness. The goodness of being the kind of creature who combines wisdom and selflessness when under threat in a sort of golden mean. After all, that's what courage is. It consists of the golden mean between cowardice and foolhardiness. The kind of creatures you describe cannot exemplify this intrinsic virtue because they can never be under threat or believe they're under threat. It's not open to perfect creatures. Well, since God values this intrinsic good, he creates creatures like us, imperfect creatures who can exemplify it. I think we might be actually reaching out in two different directions here. We might be talking past each other with how we're actually using these words. But I'll, I'll wait my turn. Go ahead and continue. Okay, well, your, your position is analogous to claiming that a perfect gardener would only include orchids in his garden. I have no beef with the presence of orchids in the garden. My only point is that roses have their own qualities, too, and... Thus, the gardener could have good reasons for including roses as well. So if we walk into a garden and the first thing we see is roses, that isn't evidence that there isn't a perfect gardener. By the same token, I have no theological problem with the idea of God creating what you call perfect creatures. My only point here is that he'd have good reasons to create us as well. Just as roses have qualities that orchids lack, so we have qualities that perfect creatures lack. And thus, the existence of imperfect creatures like human beings is not evidence against the existence of God. 
So, as I said, I worry that we might be talking past each other. When I talk of deeper goods or basic goods, I have in mind those goods which are plausibly foundational, rather than those which are derived from deeper goods and which apply only in certain worldly contexts which presuppose the existence of evil, like courage, for example. For example, I agree with you that selflessness is plausibly a deeper moral good in that sense, just as I agree that wisdom is as well. On theism, those goods would already exist to the greatest possible degree and purest possible forms in the person of God prior to creation. These goods would also exist in any perfect creatures if God felt so moved to create such beings. But this is not the case with the worldly and evil presupposing good of courage. My point is, is something similar to what philosopher J.L. Schellenberg has argued. If, if every worldly or derived good that permits or presupposes evil, for example, courage, is greatly exceeded by deeper, purer goods of the same general type existing prior to creation in God, then any world with goods that permit or presuppose evil is exceeded by a world modeling the relevant and corresponding deeper goods in the person of God or perfect creatures. I don't think we're talking past one another here. I think we just disagree. Look, orange may be derived from a combination of yellow and red, but that doesn't change the fact that orange is a color in its own right, and a tableau that includes orange may well be richer for its inclusion than one that is limited just to red and yellow. Likewise, courage may be derivative of knowledge and power plus finitude. But that doesn't change the fact that courage has value in its own right, and a tableau that includes courage in the moral sphere is richer than one that is limited to examples of unlimited power or omnipotence and unlimited knowledge or omniscience. So to sum up, I just deny the claim that a tableau without courage is obviously better than one with it. There is value with including orange brush strokes on the canvas, such as you and me. And thus God may have good reason to create a world with imperfect creatures who can exemplify courage as well as many other goods, such as altruism, for example. So I guess you're right. I mean, we just disagree at the end of the day. Unlike you, I think that the goodness of courage must ultimately reduce to more fundamental ethical facts. That if theism is true, are best exemplified in the nature of God prior to creation. Uh, and so that empties the motivation here to create the derivative facts. It seems clear to me that on theism, any new value that things like courage bring to the table as mere tokens of an already existing deeper type of good is relatively small, and because of this, it's not clear to me that a perfectly good god would be likely to create them, especially given that they presuppose the intense evils that, that occur. And at the end of the day, I think the uncreated and causally closed universe hypothesis offers a superior explanation for the fact that the creatures that do exist in our world are finite creatures, limited in precisely the ways in which God is infinite. Power, knowledge, and goodness. Okay, fair enough. But I say orange may be derivative of yellow and red, but it's still different, and it has value in its own right, and 
roses are different than orchids, but a garden with roses, I think, is a nicer garden than one without them. Courage may likewise be derivative of power and knowledge sans perfection, but it has likewise intrinsic value all its own. A moral history has value all its own. And thus, God could have excellent reasons to create creatures that can exemplify courage. Anyway, that's how I see it. Uh, why don't we just order another round of drinks? All right. Sounds good to me. If you have questions or comments about this week's episode, visit realatheology.com or email us at realatheology at gmail.com. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Realatheology. If you find value in this podcast, there are a number of ways by which you can help support the show. You can submit a review of the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast client. Share the show with your friends and family. Join Patreon and pledge a modest amount per episode at patreon.com slash realatheology or donate via the PayPal link on our website. The intro theme is by Thomas Smith of the Serious Inquiries Only podcast. All other music is by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons. Matt Smith, Richard Kane, Daniel Stenning, Jeremy Zeers, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of philosophicaldispositions.blogspot.com, Jason Mecoleta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Sange.